So James is out today, so I'm joined by a special guest host. Hercules, what do you make of the humans being home all day? Interesting. And what are your colleagues at the dog park saying about this? Okay, you can have your treat now. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on all things coronavirus. My usual co-host James Palmer is out today having a very well-deserved day off, but he'll be back with us on Monday. On today's episode, I'm going to look at how the media has handled the coronavirus pandemic, and later on I'll be joined by Roxanne Campsey, a science writer and editor. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. On Wednesday night, NBC News anchor Lester Holt described the coronavirus pandemic as the biggest story we've ever seen. Bigger even than 9-11. A Pew Research Center poll published that same day found that almost 90% of Americans are following the news about the virus. But as the president made multiple attempts to downplay the severity of the outbreak in the early days, it fell to the media to pick up the slack, informing people of outbreaks in their communities and underlining the vital importance of flattening the curve, that is, practicing social distancing and good hygiene to slow the spread of the virus. But was the media quick enough to convey the seriousness of the looming pandemic? And how have they fared in keeping the public informed when scientists themselves are still learning about the virus. To help me answer these questions, I spoke over Skype with Roxanne Campsey, a freelance science writer who until recently served as the chief news editor at Nature Medicine, a monthly biomedical journal. Roxanne was also my professor at the Newark School of Journalism, where she taught health and science reporting. When did you start following the coronavirus outbreak? When you follow like infectious disease listservs, I guess would be mm-hmm. the right word, you see outbreaks kind of cropping up that, of mysterious things. And you're like, okay, well, maybe it's something, but like probably not going to go pandemic. But the moment I learned it was a coronavirus, I really started to freak out a little bit. <laughs> and freak mm-hmm. out is maybe not the right word, but I did call my parents in mid-January and I said, look, I've been a health reporter for 15 plus years and you know I've seen H1N1, you know I've seen you know swine flu, avian flu, Ebola, Zika. I have written or edited stories about all these things and this is different. I kept saying this is different. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if I was right or wrong, but I felt like you have to respect coronaviruses. They just... Mm-hmm. Are, are something unto themselves. I don't know. Wow. So as early as mid-January, you were like, this could be bad. Oh, yeah. I sent an email to my family January 31st being like, 
make sure you have toilet paper because whether or not this is like a bad thing, people are going to freak out and buy toilet paper. So, you know, my family doesn't always take me seriously, but at this point they think I'm like clairvoyant Um, (laughs) and I'm not. It's just that I have been a science reporter and I've like followed viruses for a while and, um, you know, not all viruses are the same and we have to kind of pay attention to, to what's happening. Did you expect then that it was going to get as bad as it is now? You know, I'm of two minds about whether I anticipated it to get to this type of situation that we're in right now. Part of Mm. me desperately wanted to be wrong. Like, Mm. I just wanted to be wrong. I've never wanted to be wrong so bad or so badly. I, and I have to say also, I could never imagine things like the NBA shutting down for the season or, um, you know, the stock market pauses on trading, like these things aren't within my scope of imagination as a science writer. I, I think about how the disease spreads in communities. And I think about, you know, hospitals being overloaded that I worried about because I, you know, it was pretty clear from what was going on in China that, um, you know, respirators were in short supply Mm -hmm. and that families were, um, you know, uh, families were just devastated by losing loved ones to this. I, I spent a lot of time in January watching videos of what was going on in China because they were still cropping up on on Twitter. And I had a friend over for dinner. Um, we ate. And then I was like, hey, by the way, I'm going a little crazy. Do you want to watch these videos from China with me? And I think that he thought I was nuts. But now I feel less self-conscious about being so weird because I just needed someone else to see these videos that frankly, I was too uh, um, shy to share on Twitter because they were so alarming. What were the videos that you were seeing at that time? I saw this one video from a patient who was in an isolation ward who seemed to be on some kind of breathing assistance, or I don't know, it was in a was in bad shape, filming as the doctors across the across the way. So like kind of his 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 or her bed was facing another patient's bed, like on the adjacent on the facing wall. And mm-hmm. they were kind of taking the disma- dismantling the support system for that person's breathing and like essentially bagging them up and taking them away, which was terrifying to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, a lot of people saw videos from brave journalists and reporters who went into the wards and just kind of did the quick pass through and showed a bit there was a video of a a son whose father was kind of coding and um you know doctors are saying that's it it's over and then the the brave journalist whose name escapes me right now and i actually don't know his his status in terms of whether he's safe um was commenting that even the son was having trouble breathing i mean how are you doing after watching all those videos I'm mentally weirdly okay in some ways. Mm. I did um, did have a moment yesterday where I took a pause, listened to some cello music, and got a little, a little, uh, you know, I let out a little bit of emotion. But I think, you know, it's science at the end of the day. I think I just have to look at it, all this stuff through a scientific lens. And we're all kind of a little amped up. And I think that... Yeah. Um, you know, I've laid off the coffee because you don't really need that these days. Yeah, no one's ever having any trouble staying awake. Exactly. Do you think that in the early days of the outbreak, do you think that the media at large did a good job of 
realizing how big this could be and conveying that. (laughs) No, I know where your question is going. You have to imagine me. um, Of course, I'm here in Canada, but I have lived in the States my whole life. So uh, I just moved here a couple months ago and I'm still keeping up with the election. And here I am, imagine watching the um, questions being posed to the the candidates it was surreal like in the early weeks of this it was so surreal to live with the knowledge that there was a coronavirus you know spreading through the world and all the u.s media all the all the major networks Mm. were just primary 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 horse race of candidates and i was I'm not somebody to yell at my TV and I don't have a TV. I have a laptop where I watch this stuff. So I wasn't yelling at a television, but I was sending, I was like giving my computer the stink eye, you know, like I was really, really upset at the fact that these debates were just, I think I must've tweeted or or I don't know. I, 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 I was livid. I was upset, but I also wasn't surprised. I mean, it's a failing of, the way that major networks and newspapers cover things in the world. There's there's not enough respect to global health. And I think that this is this is the outcome. It's not like it this surprised everyone. This just surprised people who don't give enough weight to the power of natural phenomena. You know, just the same way I think climate change will surprise people that aren't paying attention. What are the biggest challenges for health and science reporters at this time when people are so hungry for information, but even scientists are still trying to understand this virus and how this might all pan out? As reporters, the media, I think that, like, I I, I do think that you have to just be very careful with wording. Even things like saying there are X number of cases in the U.S., We actually don't know how many cases there are. So I think you have to word things really carefully to say known cases or diagnosed cases. Those small things, I think, can actually have a really big impact. Um, You know, essentially, the whole world is engaged in a world in a in a game or a I know there's this game called telephone. Have you ever heard of it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that like one person whispers something into someone's ear and then the next person passes it on and the next person passes it on, but it has to be a whisper. And by the time you get to the end, the person at the end hears something that's completely different from the original thing that was spoken at the start of the chain. And of course, we'd never play this game right now because of social distancing. But, you know, our job as journalists is to make sure that that kind of loss of fidelity of the truth doesn't happen So one of the biggest things I remember from your class at journalism school was that there's a lot of very sloppy reporting around new scientific breakthroughs. And over the next year, as there's a lot of coverage of the push for a vaccine, what should news consumers watch out for to make sure that they're getting, you know, accurate scientific information on this and not the hype? So this is a fantastic question, and it actually reminds me to mention one of the, I think, early mistakes in some of the reporting was to take Anthony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and he said, you know, it would be at least 12 to 18 months, right? 
And then everyone started parroting this in a, in, inaccurately saying that, or not parroting, everyone started somehow turning this into, we're going to have a vaccine in 18, sorry, we're going to have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. And, you know, that's an example of a, a few small words making a huge difference that at least is, is, a, is a big difference. And so, you know, with, with Ebola, we, we, we saw a vaccine kind of come along pretty swiftly, but consider that we knew about the Ebola virus for four decades or so, right? So we had a, a long lead up time. Yeah. So as we're going ahead with discussions and, and like lots of attention paid on this quest for a vaccine for this new coronavirus, I think that we need to approach it with optimism, but also a little bit of skepticism. I don't know how do you mix those two things. This Moderna vaccine that's being pushed forward is a new kind of vaccine construct that really hasn't been proven or shown before. So every vaccine is not equal. I think that's what I would really tell the public and tell reporters is vaccines work in different ways. And it's really important to understand which ones are based on platforms that we have used before that are proven and vaccines that are, uh, you know, a, a totally new way that may or may not work. So I hope that what we see right now is science like we've never seen it before. And I hope that we do have a vaccine for this because it really does look like the best way out of this. But, you know, even a MERS vaccine hasn't been, as far as I know, a hundred percent efficacious. So, um, I don't know. I hope. Hope is good. That was the science writer, Roxanne Campsey, speaking over Skype. That's it for this week. I'll be back on Monday with my co-host, James Palmer. And in the meantime, don't forget to check out our website for the latest news and analysis of how the coronavirus may change the world. Head over to foreignpolicy.com. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please continue your social distancing and don't touch your face.